Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Ellard, and I'm the project manager in the Creative Industries Accelerator here at the State Library. Firstly, and most importantly, I want to say thank you to the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation who have lived on these beautiful lands that we stand on tonight for over 70,000 years. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, along with the elders of other communities that may be here tonight. I also want to give a warm welcome to the Friends of the Library, Grattan Institute members, and tonight's speakers, Sonia Arakal, Stephen Kukoulis, Danielle Wood, and Paul Austin. I'm delighted to be here this evening to welcome you all to this important discussion about intergenerational politics and the economic future of today's young Australians. At State Library Victoria, our vision is to be a catalyst for generating new knowledge and ideas with events such as this, the policy pitch. Key to this, in, key to this vision is our investment in creating spaces and services that will ensure Victorians have access to information, knowledge building opportunities and skills development that they need to succeed in the future. We are in the final stages of a major redevelopment, Vision 2020. Our Russell Street entrance opened last spring and we are opening the remainder of our new spaces in spring this year. This $88.1 million investment is providing Victorians with 40% more public space in the library and opening areas that have been closed for many years. One of these new spaces is the Ideas Quarter which will house the library's Start Space program. Start Space will be for very early stage startups, founders, and, new, and small businesses who are kickstarting their companies. And we've created Start Space in response to Victoria's rapidly changing style of work. We know that the global economy is changing quickly and that Australia has limited access to the training, time, investment, and peer support needed for new entrepreneurs. We know that in Australia, two-thirds of people under 30 wish to work for themselves, that up to five million traditional Australian jobs are set to vanish in the next decade, and that we'll see much higher rates of self-employment. We also know that approximately 70% of young people are entering the workforce in jobs that will radically alter with the rise of automation and more than 50% of Australian workers will need higher levels of digital literacy skills. Victoria's innovation economy will depend on bold, creative entrepreneurs, which is why Startspace was founded, to partner with businesses, startups, and other libraries to prioritise supporting creativity and knowledge in Victoria. Through Startspace, the library can support Victoria's next generation of startup founders. So in continuing with that future thinking theme, I'm sure everyone here is eager to, ex eager to explore the serious issue of intergenerational inequality and what, if anything, can be done. And I'm delighted that State Library Victoria's partnership with the Grattan Institute 
continues to deliver important conversations like the one we will have tonight. I'm also delighted to introduce Paul Austin, who is leading tonight's discussion. Paul is editor at Grattan, and he has worked for many years as a journalist and editor at Fairfax and News Corporation. He reported from the Canberra and Spring Streets press galleries and was at various times deputy editor and opinion editor at both The Age and the Australian newspapers. He won a Quill Award for Best Deadline Reporting and was highly, highly commended in the Walkley Awards for Best Feature Writing and the Quill Awards for Best Columnist. Please welcome Sonia, Stephen, Danielle and Paul. Thank you so much, Robin, for that very generous introduction. And can I also welcome everyone to this important event at this terrific and growing forum, the State Library of Victoria. I would like quickly to join with Robin in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and I too pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As Robin mentioned, I'm the editor at Grattan, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage by a terrific panel. On my left, Sonia Arakal. Sonia is a co-founder of Think Forward, a lobby group for young Australians. Sonia's history of advocating for young Australians dates back more than a decade when, as a high school student in Perth, she wrote a letter to the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, questioning the intergenerational fairness of the GST stimulus package, GFC stimulus package. In 2018, Sonia was selected as a young social pioneer by the Foundation of Young Australians for her work with Think Forward. Next to Sonia is Stephen Kakoulis. Stephen is Managing Director of Market Economics. He's worked as an economist in government, banking, finance markets and policy formulation. He was senior economic advisor to Prime Minister Julia Gillard and has worked in the Commonwealth Treasury and as chief economist at Citibank Australia. As many of you will know, Stephen appears regularly in the media and is a valuable and an energetic contributor on Twitter under his handle, The Kook. And on my far left is Danielle Wood. Danny is a colleague of mine at the Grattan Institute where she runs the Budget Policy Program and the Institutional Reform Program. She's busy. She has produced an important body of work on intergenerational equity. Danny previously worked as Principal Economist at the ACCC and as a Senior Research Economist at the Productivity Commission. And she is, among other things, the National Chair of the Women in Economics Network. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome our panel for this evening. Could I very briefly outline the structure for the evening? I'll chat with the panel for about the next half hour or so, and then I want to leave about half an hour for questions from you our audience members, so please be ready to raise your hands when that opportunity comes. Okay, it's a big topic and it's a terrific panel, so let's get to it. And I want to start, Sonia, if I may, with you. I want to go back to your last year in school at All Saints College in Perth. It was, I think, 2009 or thereabouts, 
and you decided to write a letter to Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Tell us about that. What prompted you to write the letter and what did you say? Uh, well, I was a very cool teenager, first of all. I of must course. Start, start with that. Obviously. <laughs> um, I had braces and a penchant to um, write letters to Prime Ministers. But it was the second round of the stimulus package that prompted me to raise the question mm -hmm. of what do the decisions that we make today mean for the children in school, high school or primary school in the future? And it was the basic tenet of no taxation without representation. And how, how is it that young people aren't consulted or necessarily front of mind when we make important economic decisions that they have to live with? Wasn't quite as polite as that, was it, Sonia? I think you likened the Prime Minister to a drunken parent who spends the family inheritance and then begs the kids for their pocket money to cure the hangover. <laughs> that, you know, there was a lot else, but that was what the media decided to put at front uh, of page. But yes, I think it, it, it was a quite emotive time and, there, and it's a feeling that a lot of others in my generation have, which is an anger of the excess of the baby boomer generation or those over 65, whether it's excess in th that has resulted in the financial crises that happened in 2009 or that may be happening soon, the excessive use of the environment, we look at endemic obesity. These are all issues that as future taxpayers, as young people today, we are concerned about in our country, but also in what that means for the lives that we'll live and the decisions that as leaders we'll make when the time comes. So before I move to the slightly older members of our panel tonight, I want to know this, did you get a reply? Not from the Prime Minister, but I did from the Treasurer. Uh -huh. uh, and I got a reply from overseas as well, because it was this is an issue that's not just an Australian issue, but also uh, there in the US and the UK, and in their responses to the recession, they had similar similar uh, stimulus, stimulus packages. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, 10 years on, to look at where we've come and whether it has improved. And I'm not sure that it has for young people. Young people are suffering under increasing inaffordability of houses, precarious employment. They see the welfare state retreating from their generation as politicians chase the grey vote. And so I'm really glad that we're here talking today with two of Australia's leading economists and, um, <laughs> and on this topic because now we're not obsessing about what millennials have for breakfast and instead, you know, talking about moving beyond the meme and into the very real policy decisions. Let's talk to two of Australia's foremost economists. Stephen, is Sonia right? There are some really important issues there that you raise. Um, the stimulus packages in the GFC uh, were temporary, targeted and timely. So there's no lingering effect of those stimulus packages. They weren't income tax cuts that were embedded into the forward estimates. They were money for say pink bats, school halls and checks for $900. They were one-off items and not one cent of that lasted beyond, I think, about 2011. So, yes, they were big. They were big-ticket items. They forced the budget back into deficit, but they were temporary and not embedded into the, into the um, 
uh, forward estimates into the structural budget balance. So there's that, that element of it too. So there's so that was that was one part of it. But there are a range of policy issues that are so important in terms of the intergenerational take. And I think that as we have this conversation over the next hour or so, that I'm sure we're going to cover the, the things that are about fairness and about opportunity. That whether opportunities have uh, closed for, for younger people, you mentioned housing, you mentioned um, a few other issues, but whether other doors have opened. And uh, don't ignore either side of that ledger because I think as we go through this discussion, we're going to uncover some of the things that... Uh, gee, I wish I was young today, uh, and, mm. and I'm thinking, gee, I'm glad I'm old today, sort of thing. So, you know, so there's a whole lot of issues that I hope we can uncover. Thanks, Stephen. We'll certainly drill into some specifics. But, Danny, Sonia Wright, is the younger generation copping a bad deal? It's a very hard question to answer, and I sort of I come out a little bit where Stephen is, I think, in the sense that it's very hard to compare holistically... Um, between generations. Each generation has their kind of set of, you know, social, mm. cultural, economic circumstances and they do well on some things and poorly on others. Um, when I look at this question, I think about, you know, what are the policy settings in place and are there policies that are actively transferring from one generation to another? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I'm concerned about. Um, and in my mind, there's three areas where I would answer yes to that question. Um, firstly, climate change. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, undeniable that, the, you know, we know now that there are very significant environmental, economic, social health costs associated with the changing climate. If you delay actions, those costs get larger. Um, you know, that's a classic intergenerational transfer issue. Mm -hmm. um, number two is, is housing, and we'll come back and talk about it later. But in my mind, you know, if we are not going to build more houses in the inner and middle ring suburbs where people want to live when we have a growing population, there will be ongoing housing challenges for younger people. Um, and the third is, is tax and budgets, which comes back to, to, to Sonia's point. Um, Stephen is right that you know the, the GSC stimulus was a, a short-term issue, but there are some long-term structural budget problems which are going to hit young people. Um, we know demographic change is going to put increasing pressure on the budget and we have supercharged that pressure that's going to face working age Australians um, through a series of, of tax policy decisions which are um, increasingly generous to, to older, better off households. Okay, so we'll go through each of those policy areas and others um, shortly, but I want to raise one with you, Stephen, that might fall into the category of, I wish I was young today, <laughs> educational attainment. Now, <laughs> most young people today finish year 12 and most who want to, it seems to me, can and do go to university. That wasn't the case with our grandparents, was it? No, certainly not. And I think that's one of the things that we should celebrate. You know, sometimes policy makers and society gets things right. And I think we need to sort of celebrate those and really um, react to them. But, you know, the, the data from, say, the late 70s, early 80s, not that long ago, uh, and we saw that in some of the Bob Hawke sort of um, uh, tributes when he passed away a week ago, that when he became Prime Minister, only 30% of kids finished Year 12. 30. Wow. Isn't wow. that extraordinary? And only 3% went to university. Wow. So think about those numbers for a minute. So that's actually pretty pretty grim. So if you were 
growing up in the 70s and 80s, you'd probably finish school, or there's a good chance you'd finish school at year 10, and you'd go and work at the local Ford um, plant at Geelong or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't a high-paying, high-skilled, high-income opportunity. Fast forward to now, you've got about 80, 85% roughly um, of uh, young people finishing year 12 and sort of 30 odd percent depending how you exactly measure it because some old people go to university as well but they're going to university getting an education getting a skill and being able to be wonderfully articulate and put a really strong case why there's uh, intergener um, intergenerational inequity there oh, so that educational attainment and we know from thousands countless thousands of studies that there is a strong link between education and skills attainment and income the better your skills, knowledge, and uh, educational attainment, the higher income you're going to earn. And so that's a good thing, and I think we should celebrate that. Indeed. Uh, but, Danielle, there is a bit of a, a nuance to some of this, isn't there? Um, there are some interesting trends on university graduate employment prospects. Um, I'm not an expert in this area, but my certainly my understanding is as we've, we've had a sort of a rising supply of university graduates, as more and a greater, greater share of people go on to university, um, those kind of income effects that Stephen talks about are still there, but they're not as pronounced as they once were. Um, so, and certainly in terms of graduate employment outcomes, um, there are people graduating from um, particularly things like biological sciences, um, humanities, performing arts, are finding it very, very difficult to get a job in that particular field. Um, so a university degree is still incredibly valuable, but it doesn't necessarily mean what it once did in terms of um, stable, high-playing employment once you finish. And Sonia, what about university fees, which are quite new and which I believe can weigh quite heavily on young university graduates? Yes, I think the fact that we're paying fees at all is something to be noted. Not to say that universities shouldn't be paid for by the people who benefit from it, but it's not all sunny days for young people because we start working later and we start working with debt and our employment, as we just heard, um, is changing and precarious. Where there's future skills that university degrees aren't necessarily giving us, which means that our earning potential is compromised and it isn't the same value as a university degree uh, during the Hawke-Keating era. We'll uh, come to your questions about this matter and others soon, but Stephen, the, uh, perhaps an area where um, I'm really glad I'm not young these days is housing prices. Is it correct that this is getting really serious for younger Australians? Uh, not, no, not really. Um, if you look at the uh, affordability measure that I think it's the preferred one from the Reserve Bank and from people who are looking at their ability to borrow money and uh, service a mortgage. That um, back in the early 80s, uh, if, you're on, if you had an average household income, you bought a median-priced house and you paid the standard variable mortgage interest rates, uh -huh. okay, you would pay about a quarter of your disposable income servicing that loan. Fast forward to today, if you have got an average household income, you buy the median priced house at the standard variable mortgage interest rate, you pay about a quarter of your income in servicing that loan. Mm -hmm. So the dynamics on housing affordability, we tend to, well some people tend to focus on the price relative to household income and yes, that has gone up 
that's more than doubled. I think it's gone from roughly in Australia, sort of two times to about four and a half times, maybe five times, depending which city we're in. But that's at the that's been at the time when interest rates have been you know, massively lowered. So there's this question: Would you prefer the old days where a house was cheap relative to your income, but you had to pay 15% interest, and you did that for about 15 years, or now where you pay oh gosh, you pay four or five times your income, but you're only paying you know four percent interest? Danny. <laughs> Just have to get in. Um, look, so uh, <laughs> a couple of points on affordability. So um, everything that Stephen said is correct. Um, first issue <laughs> is trying to get in in the first place, saving for a deposit. In a world where house prices are substantially higher, it simply takes longer to save enough for a 20% deposit. So back in the 1990s, you know, it was took you on average, on average income, six years to save for a median price house. Um, today, that figure is 10 years. So it's substantially longer to get in. Um, the second point I would make is the, the figures that Stephen is quoting is about repayments as a share of income at the start of your mortgage. Now, in a world where inflation is high, um, interest rates are higher, nominal wage growth is higher, um, you end up paying off your mortgage faster. Or another way to put it, your mortgage repayments as a share of your income come down substantially faster. In a world with low interest rates and low growth in wages, um, those repayments stay much higher as a share of your income over time. So yes, there might not be much difference in affordability in year one, but once you get out to year 15, it's a substantially different picture. Sonia, you've heard the economists and slightly different perspectives there. What, what's your impression about the weight of housing prices? I think housing prices are just one half of the equation. What young people are looking for has changed and because of the high cost of entry that you've just talked about, Danielle, young people aren't all planning to buy a house. So mm. the other side of it is renting and how do we make housing secure, whether that's making it affordable or making sure that vulnerable young renters aren't at the mercy of landlords. In terms of the uh, cost of housing, housing in our society is a big part of where we draw our wealth from. So it's understandable that young people look at these huge upfront costs of getting into the market or a fifth, you know, 30 years to pay off a loan and think, that there's, there's, there's no way that government are sitting down and thinking, making a plan for secure housing for young people, whether that's renting reform or finding a way, putting in the effort to sit down and address supply side issues and fiddle with the tax styles so that they're set up in a way that the cost of entry and the burden over time is something that's similar to what previous generation, gen generations benefited from. If Stephen? I just put in there, because it, it is an interesting point. I've got, I'm old enough to have um, quite a number of nieces and nephews of in the mid-20s, plus or minus five years. None of them are buying a house. None of them have, um, they're all renting. Uh, and when I talk to them about it, which of course I do over family dinners, we do talk about other things as well, but housing does come up. But yeah, you talk, you talk to them and say, well, yeah, yeah what, what, what are the issues? And they tell me from, from their perspective what the issues are. And in a sense, 
Danielle, you're quite right about the deposit. I think, oh, God, we've just got to save so much to get that 20% deposit. So that's the first thing. And then they say, you know, we do this for a couple of years. We do eat baked beans on toast and don't go on any holidays. And then we think, OK, we've got a few bucks there. I'm sick of this. I'm just going to take 5000 out and I'm going to have a holiday. So in a sense, and this is not being a criticism at all, it's just an observation that they sort of say that it is, you know, that 10 years is such a long time away and it is so hard that um, after a few years they capitulate and sort of say, look, stuff it, I'm just going to, um, you know, have a good time for a while. And again, it's not a criticism at all, but they just sort of say, well, you know, I've gone to this hard work. and the housing's getting no more affordable for me or getting that access to the deposits no easier for me. So I'm, I'm just going to, I won't say not bother, but just pare back my goal of getting that 20% deposit saved soon. And Danny, there's another um, question on housing or an impression that I have on housing, which is that we baby boomers, I'm talking for myself here, benefited from the house price boom. It was really a bonanza for a certain generation. And now the younger generation is locked out. Is that borne out by the figures? Uh, well, yes, it is. I mean, certainly you can see there has been a massive shift in intergenerational wealth um, over the past kind of 15 years, which lines up quite nicely with the house price boom. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you take an average household, I'll try and get these figures right off the top of my head, um, 65 to 74 today, they are about $600,000 richer on average than a household of that age was, I think it's 12 years ago. $600,000. If I take a household 25 to 34 today, on average, I think it's $40,000 richer than a household of that same age 12 years ago. So wealth for young people has barely moved. It's essentially flatlined over that period. And there has been extremely strong growth in older households. Of course, not all ho older households. This is just averages. But if you owned a house before the, the prices took off, if you owned in the late 1990s or early 2000s, um, you, you have done very well out of that investment. And Danny, let me ask about a closely related issue, incomes, wages, what have been the sort of trend lines there over that same period of 15, 20 years? Yeah, look, it's not as, um, it's not a clearer disparity when you talk about incomes. In fact, when we, we looked at this issue for the first time about five years ago, um, we concluded there was actually kind of nothing to see in terms of incomes. Everyone's incomes were growing back then mm. um, and the, all age groups were experiencing income growth. So we sort of thought it's a bit of a a non-event. Um, when can I get a wage rise? Yeah, well, that's right. So things have changed a lot in five years. Um, and, you know, that, that's been basically the period where we've had stagnant wages in this country. Um, that does particularly hurt young people. So for the past five years, incomes for young people are flatlined because they're highly reliant on, on wage income. That's their, their major source of income. Right. Um, you know, even people, you know, up to age 55 have, have really seen a flatlining of their incomes. Um, older Australians have been somewhat insulated simply because they're less likely to be relying on wage income. They tend to have income from other sources, either um, pensions or investment income, um, which have grown at a faster at a faster rate. So, you know, where that goes is an interesting question. Mm. Um, so... We don't know yet where wages are going to go. Um, RBA and Treasury are valiantly forecasting that wages growth is going to pick up and go back to historical trends. Um, if we look at overseas, where places like the UK and the US, where wages have been stagnant for, for much longer periods than here, yep. um, you can now see a generation that has made no progress compared to the one previously. So we have millennials coming out of their first decade in the workforce that are on the same or slightly worse incomes 
then Generation X was at the, the same age. So that kind of assumption of generation on generation progress that we all hope will be there um, can go away in a world in which wages stagnate for a long period of time. But Stephen, there seems to be a rosier picture, at least on the face of it, when I look to the employment market, unemployment is stubbornly quite low in Australia, is it not? Yeah, it is. And, and this is, again, another a good, a good news story, not just the cyclical side, because yeah, unemployment goes up and down with the business cycle, and, um, and that's fine. But basically, since, since uh, about three or four years before the GFC, so let's call it about 2004-ish, the unemployment rate's basically been between 4 and 6%. Ooh. And that's a long time where it's nice and low. And that's with a significantly higher participation rate too. So the dynamics of the labour market uh, are telling me that in, it is, inverted commas, easier to get a job now with a low unemployment rate and a very high participation rate. Whereas if we look back to the, again, I'll just use the 70s and 80s experience and perhaps even into the early 90s, unemployment was pretty persistently between 6 and 10% often around seven or eight. So uh, even when you finish school at year 10 or finish year 12, the lucky ones who went to university, you're entering a labour market where the unemployment rate was sort of roughly one in 12 people. Now uh -huh. it's sort of roughly one in 20 people who are unemployed. So that says to me that um, the ease of getting... Now, this is just getting a job, not necessarily the job you want... Yes. The, your desirable job. but it, So maybe the, the low unemployment net rate now that we're seeing you know, around about 5% is people sort of saying, well, I'll drive an Uber or I'll jump on Deliveroo. So I've got a job, even though the pay might be very, very poor. And a related point is that a lot of people surely are underemployed these days. Yeah, that, and the under, underemployment numbers, which is, I was, was going to say, all of a sudden got the focus of people. It's always been there, but no one's really looked at it terribly much until the last few years when we've noted that post-GFC, uh, um, that the underemployment rate, that is people who have a job, so the Bureau of Statistics asks people, do you have a job? Yes, that's good. Then they ask people, are you working the, the number of hours you want? And uh, roughly eight, eight and a half percent of people say, no, I would like to work more hours. Uh, so clearly they're working 10 or 15 or 20 hours a week and they just can't get that amount of hours. And, I, and the only reason I think anyone would want to work more hours is because they need more money. Um, uh, yes, I prefer to work less hours. <laughs> get, get paid the same. But you know, yeah. But if you're, if you're asking these people, do you want to work more hours? It's probably because you need the money. You need to pay your rent. You need to pay your utilities bills. You need, you need the money to come in. So, and that's been stubborn at around 8 to 9% for basically 10 years. And it's one of the things that the RBA, when they're trying to work out, well, why are wages growth? Why is wages growth? So like when unemployment's gone to 5%, you know, we can't quite work it out, paraphrasing. Um, it's the underemployment rate that's sort of providing that extra slack in the labour market that just hasn't been absorbed into full employment. So, Sonia, is underemployment and youth unemployment, I should mention as well, of course, whilst the headline unemployment rate is very good at 5%, youth unemployment is a lot higher. Underemployment and unemployment, a big issue in, in the people that you're talking with and dealing with? Yes, and, I, and I'm glad that we are differentiating between the youth unemployment numbers and overall. It's that I think that's a more uh, salient comparison. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't be you know, trumpeting the fact that we have got the same uh, or uh, unemployment overall as the 80s or looking even internationally to countries in the OECD like France and Greece that have youth unemployment 
um, as a huge issue. We, we need to be ambitious for our young people and um, that means the current levels of youth unemployment are unacceptable. When it comes to underemployment, that, mm. whether that's in the gig economy or casualised work, that comes with a whole raft of other issues. I have a friend who has recently done a PhD at the University of Melbourne and has been working throughout her time um, doing contract and casualised work at the university. And what is the impact of that on her superannuation? Mm. And having underemployment um, figures or unemployment figures on their own don't tell the full picture of what it's like for young people today. It's how is this employment setting them up to pay off their hex debt, to deal with their superannuation in the future, whether they're getting being compelled to collect it or not, and save for that huge deposit that requires them to um, have some kind of stability into their future. So, Danny, here's a simple one. The gig, the gig economy... Good or bad? Oh, God. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Look, I think it's small as a share of total mm. employment, so we shouldn't mm. think that it's driving the overall trends. Um, youth underemployment is very high. It's sitting at about 20%. I don't think that's just the gig economy. I think it's just the broad shift in the economy towards the services sector and expansion in hospitality and all sorts of other areas where part-time work is the norm. Um, so I don't think the gig economy is entirely entirely to blame. Um, that said, I think there is a case to kind of look at the labour regulations and how they apply in the gig economy. Um, you know, people employed as individual contractors where they look like employees. Um, there are a set of issues that um, exist there and we know that um, young people are disproportionately employed in that sector. Okay, so I'll keep throwing the easy ones to you, Danny. The, the, the taxation system. <laughs> You've done a lot of work on intergenerational issues with regard to taxation and with regard in particular to tax breaks for older Australians. What do you find? What's, what's the tax system's role in the intergenerational divide? Well, this one makes always makes me extremely popular and, um, you know, I look forward to all the angry letters I receive. But, look, I, I think it, it genuinely is an important issue to look at the sustainability of the system and whether those generous tax breaks, and there was a series of them that were introduced when times were good during the mining boom. Um, so there are a range of what I would call age-based tax breaks in the system. What are so, we talking about? Um, there's something called the Seniors and Pensioners Tax Offset, um, which you can sort of think of as giving a, a higher tax-free threshold to, to older Australians compared to younger mm -hmm. Australians. There's tax-free superannuation in retirement. So as long as you have less than 1.6 million in your super account as a single or 3.2 million for a couple, you will pay zero tax on your superannuation earnings. It's big. It's big. Um, refundable franking credits. Uh, dare I mention the war? <laughs> we, all, we all actually know what those are now and we perhaps <laughs> didn't know six, six months ago. I think um, we like them, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> but look, to, together they come together to make the system quite generous for, for well-off older Australians. Um, so just to give you some indication of the magnitude, you know, an average older household with income of $60,000 a year will pay less income tax than an average younger household on $30,000 a year. Um, so age mm. matters almost as much as income when you're looking at tax burden. Um, why I worry about that is we know that there is a demographic shift underway. Um, the sizeable baby boom generation is hitting those retirement age. 
that was always going to put pressure on younger people. That's basic demographics. There's going to be fewer working age people for every person over 65. Um, but this is turbocharging that pressure. The only way this can be sustained is if we keep ratcheting up income tax rates on, on working age Australians. And I think that um, you know, starts to create some serious economic as well as social problems. Stephen, do the elderly get it too good with regard to the structure of our tax system? And can I put it this way, the sort of the, 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 the phrasing that you often hear is, I've worked hard all my life, I've paid my taxes, surely the government can give me a bit of a go in my final years. Yeah, I think Danielle summarised it brilliantly because the, the tax system is remarkably unfair and those issues that she mentioned are, are, are big ticket items, even just the, as we know now, the refundable franking credit issue is $6 billion, so it's 150, $120, 130000000 million a week effectively goes in refunds to people who pay no tax anyway. Mm, mm. And that's clearly not... Well, I don't think it's sustainable unless there's tax revenue raised from other sources or uh, the population puts up with diminished quality of services. And the issue about I've paid tax all my life so therefore I deserve mm. something back is a really curious one. Well, you probably haven't paid enough tax during your life is the answer that I'd say, and then I'd run away very quickly. But, um, <laughs> um, but you probably haven't paid enough tax. That's the issue. Yes, we all pay tax... Uh, during our working lives, and that's good, but we all benefit from the services. Our kids get educated, we go to hospital when there's an emergency, we go to the doctor, we drive on roads, uh, we have our country defended. We have all these things for the taxes that we do pay. Um, and the fact that we've got, and I'm not terribly concerned about our level of government debt, but you know, uh -huh. maybe uh -huh. sort of yeah, half worried about it. Um, um, you, 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 when we've got that debt levels, and you know, net debt's what, uh, you know, 20% of uh, GDP or something like that, you'd want it to be down a bit rather mm -hmm. than up a bit when the mm -hmm. economy's been growing for 28 years, um, even though we did have to throw away a bit of money during the GFC. But, yeah, so it does... So that we, we've got... If, if you want to get that debt level, government debt level down, you want to have a sustainable budget position and things, frankly, and it's, it's really simple, it's remarkably simple, either we've got... We as a society have got to demand fewer services, which I think was the result of the weekend's election, or we've got to pay more tax, which clearly people don't want to do. Sonia, what do you say to my um, made-up grumpy old man <laughs> who says to you, give me a go, I paid taxes all my life, you're only just beginning? Mm. It's, it's interesting. I think there's that image of the frail old lady with the walking stick behind which a whole <laughs> generation is hiding behind. And it's... I would say to your hypothetical person that old age in the tax system is now no longer a proxy for need. And that's scary. And that's a fundamental shift in how we think about who is worthy poor. But it's time to start having those conversations. And you're right, it, we haven't even mentioned the cost of aged care and it's set to be um, as big as Medicare in nine years' time. And couple that with the fact that in 1970, you had seven working age Australians for every pensioner. In 2050, that's going to be down to three. That's an excellent response to my hypothetical old man. <laughs> um, let's throw that very big issue that you've opened up there to the economists. The ageing of the population, the so-called demographic freight train. Uh, this is a real issue, isn't it, Danny? Uh, it certainly puts budgets under pressure. Um, so the Parliamentary Budget Office 
put out a report just a day before the federal budget actually showing that um, ageing would add about 0.3% of GDP to spending in 10 years' time and it will wipe about 0.4% of revenue off in 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 10 years' time. And that's um, so 10 as, years and, and then beyond, That's yes. right. So, you know, as people get older, um, they tend to consume um, more services. Um, that's very normal. Um, health spending is higher for older Australians, that's as it's always been. Um, but health spending grows quickly. Um, Australia, like other countries, um, health spending tends to grow as a share of the economy as we get richer. Um, I don't think anyone wants to begrudge people that. We all want to have the latest and greatest, and I think you know, mm. longer, healthier lives are a wonderful thing, and we should want that for, for every Australian. But if you're going to spend an increasing share of your budget on something, that means you either have to spend less elsewhere or you have to raise more in, in taxes. And, of course, Stephen, it's not just spending more money on elderly each elderly person, but we are, as a population, getting older inexorably. Yeah, we are, and that's a good thing, I think. And yeah. uh, as Danny was sort of saying, but one of the things that is important, and it's a slightly different answer or solution mm. or, or a step towards addressing the problem, and, and we're seeing it a little bit already, is sort of that old idea that you retired at 65 is increasingly obsolete. And just in the last decade or so, mm. The I'll try to get these numbers right too. <laughs> the proportion of people aged 65 and over still remaining in paid employment has gone from something like, if I remember correctly, something like about 8%, so not very many, to about 15%. Mm -hmm. So it's still very, very low. And that could be partly because of financial need, because not everybody's got 1.6 million in their super and the, a couple of million dollar house, not everybody. Um, so some people might need to, but the fact that they're, pretty healthy and pretty good at age 65 and they're not just watching Midsummer Murders at lunchtime on a Tuesday afternoon. It's one of my favourite shows. It is my favourite too. That's why I mention it. But, you know, and I don't do that on a Tuesday afternoon very often. Um, no, no, I don't, I don't. But, you know, but they love to work and that's good and that's great. And I think, you know, I, I personally, I'm not that quite that close yet, but I can't imagine just sort of at 65 pulling up stumps and doing nothing. I, you know, I want to keep working and maybe not quite as hard or something but uh, that so if I'm self-sufficient if you like because I'm still earning a bit of an income and all these other things and that's I'm not going to be such a drag on the public purse to use the sort of um, derogatory terms <laughs> that you didn't quite get to. <laughs> <laughs> okay so I want to quickly throw open uh, the question of solutions. Sonia paints a picture of substantial problems here some of the trends and figures absolutely support that, perhaps most notably the ageing of the population. What, Danny, can or should governments do to overcome some of the problems we've been discussing? Well, on the sort of structural budget challenges, um, I think I've probably already made it clear, but I think we need to look at some of those tax breaks. Um, if I had my choice, I wouldn't go after refundable franking credits, I'd actually look at the taxation of superannuation in retirement. Um, I think that super should be taxed, super earnings should be taxed at 15% um, in retirement phase in the same way as they are um, for, for people of, of working age. Um, of course, you know, the, the ultimate solution to the problem is to grow the economy. Sure. Um, if anyone can get wages growth and economic growth up, um, you deal with the, the problem pretty quickly. Um, that is a much harder thing for governments to do and there's only so many levers they, they have to pull 
but um, you know, looking at kind of things that will boost the long-term productive capacity of the economy. Um, there was one policy in the election which I thought was a really, really good one, which was um, Labor's childcare subsidy policy, mm -hmm. not the wages policy, which mm -hmm. I did not think was quite so good. But, um, you know, what that did was make it or certainly created the incentive for second earners, particularly women, um, to, to go from three to four or four to five days work a week um, without the very strong disincentive that exists at the moment because of the cost of childcare. Um, so there are levers that government does have at their disposal which boost the size of the economy overall, um, which we know will help young people. Sonia, if you were given the levers of government, what, what are one or two of the most important things that you would change? I think I'd ask the Productivity Commission to do a review of age-based tax concessions and start having that conversation. I think the title of this event is not the right one. We're not here talking about intergenerational warfare. Mm -hmm. it, you, know, you can draw up images of young people tackling old ladies in the street or picketing nursing homes. Mm -hmm. Where What we want to be doing and what we've been doing today is sitting down and talking about the fact that we've designed our communities, our institutions, our parliaments for three, maybe four generations living and working at a time. But thankfully, because of uh, better health outcomes, we have a longevity uh, opportunity to re-interrogate how having five generations living, working, getting social security benefits at a time means for how we tax and spend. So I think having that discussion um, beyond generational warfare lines, beyond franking credits and um, beyond avocado toast is the first step. Stephen, you've got 90 seconds to redesign Australian public policy and governments to make this better. Okay. Go. I've got, well, in addition to the other issues, one thing that is, it is evident to me, and it's been evident for some time, and it didn't really come up in the election campaign, it did at the margin, is an inequality issue that um, uh, through the tax system, we mm -hmm. do we do know that people on low incomes tend to have a higher propensity to spend. People on high, very very high incomes don't even know if they've got a ten bucks in their pocket, whereas someone on very very low incomes values every dollar that they've got. Now the reason I mention that is that if you adjust the progressivity of the tax system so that sounds like a Robin Hood sort of solution in a sense that you lower the tax impost on people on low and middle incomes so they've got more disposable cash. To keep it revenue neutral, unfortunately, you've got to take that tax from very high income earners one mm. way or another through either mm. uh, capital gains tax changes or um, taxing their super or something like that. So you got or income tax scales even. I don't know. I can't remember the last time we ever had ever had an increase in any income tax scale in Australia. I think it, I think it's at least fifty years. By the way, <laughs> they've only ever gone down. Um, so if you were to look at the other than the deficit levy, if you were to look at sort of maybe hiking the tax rate, income tax rate on very high income. You can keep it revenue neutral to the budget, which I think is somewhat important, but you get a bigger bang for your buck because Ooh. people, the low income earners, spend every Ooh. dollar that they get high income earners. So, for example, I won't necessarily use pick on Gina Reinhart, but if you gave her an extra million dollars, she wouldn't even know she had a million dollars, would she? She wouldn't, it would, it's sort of like a rounding, it's one cent change in the price of iron ore to her. It's irrelevant to her. Whereas if you gave a thousand low income people a thousand dollars each, so a million dollars again, I reckon they'd spend almost all of that money on mm. something. Mm. And so what would happen to economic growth? It'd be faster. What would happen, you know, what's, what's the effect of a budget of the redistribution of that $1 million? Zero. Okay, I'd love to ask more, but I'm going to resist, Sonia. I'm going to open it to 
the floor. It's your opportunity now. As you can see, we've got three of the sharpest minds in Australia waiting to take your questions. When you get the call, if you get the call, please wait for a microphone to come to you. And my only request is that we are seeking questions, not statements. So please keep your comments as short as possible. I'll start on the left here with the gentleman there. Um, it seems that it seems that uh, there are two issues that uh, uh, haven't been discussed and s seems to become shibboleths. And one is uh, the GST, and the other is industrial relations reform. Um, when Peter Reith made his deal with uh, Meg Lees, there was very little logic as to why only half the goods and services would be taxed and the other half let free. Now, there was, was a political decision, certainly not an economic one to my mind. Would it not improve the um, revenue flow to have a broad-based, comprehensive GST with with uh, transfer payments for those most affected by uh, the regressive nature of the GST. Let me get the economist to answer that and I will come back to your second point if you don't mind, sir. Danny? Uh, the answer is yes. Stephen? Um, and yeah, an unambiguous <laughs> yes, yes. Danny, some more. <laughs> no, look, I, you know, sometimes when I look at the tax data, I think, thank God for the GST. That's actually... Um, older Australians actually pay no more income tax now than they did 20 years ago, um, despite having substantially higher incomes, but they do pay GST. Everyone pays GST because we all consume. Um, but is it possible to design a broader GST base um, with income tax cuts and with increases, you know, very important you need to increase welfare payments to compensate? Um, yes, it is. Do I think it's a good idea? Yes, I, yes, I do. Do I think it's going to happen? No, I don't. <laughs> Yeah, just, Stephen? just very quickly, yes, I think we should broaden the base and even hike the level. Yeah, we can work out the numbers based on that. But the other thing that I think we can consider, and this is probably a bit heresy in uh, in some circles, is that we've seen it with the tobacco excise tax. The amount of revenue they get from that is huge. Now, admittedly, that's going to start, pardon the pun, die off um, <laughs> uh, over time. So, but, um, but there are other items in the tax system where I think there are grounds... You know, keep it relatively narrow. While the GST is a great thing, just maybe the luxury car tax or an alcohol tax sort of excise, a little bit more of an impost on that, can create a lot of money and it's actually relatively fair if you structure that reasonably well. And so your other point was industrial relations reform, which yeah, didn't get much of a run through the campaign either, did it? Well, it's petrified the, the Conservatives and um, um, there's, a, a, there's a certain complacency on the left um, in relation to it. It's like, it's almost as if it's now we're in utopia as far as industrial... What do you mean by industrial relations reform, if I can well, butt in? I mean, what's, uh, what, what's the reform that's well, needed? Well, uh, from my experience in my uh, work, um, there's, an, an, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, inbuilt costs to employing people and they seem to be growing as time goes on. And uh, uh, part of the issues that I think a lot of small employers have is... Um, is every extra, it's a big decision to hire an extra person because it adds to a whole range of other costs. Now, some are quite legitimate, in, such as um, um, occupational health and safety issues and, and uh, workplace, uh, work cover and those sort of things, but there are these are costs that go to, uh, these are hindrances on employment. And uh, a freer industrial um, and relations system, I would have thought, would... Um, that, that attracts um, 
entrance at, at various levels for new people, for new employees, would be uh, for the better. Sonia, do you think a freer industrial relations system might reduce youth unemployment or is it something that young people should be frightened of? I think freer is the wrong word. Modernised industrial relations to keep up with the way that work has changed and will continue mm -hmm. to change. Um, I'm sure the economists can speak better to that, but I would be nervous of the use of freer and always think about how we are keeping industrial relations reform keeping up with the reality of work and especially young people who are the most vulnerable entering the workforce and who haven't benefited from wage growth, how are we making sure that they're still saving for their retirement? Another question, please. The lady right in the middle, just to make it difficult. Thank you. Thank you very much. So my question as a comparatively young person, I'm 31, what can I myself do to become more empowered to affect intergenerational change? And what can I do to empower my peers, my younger siblings, younger people? I mean, I think everyone understands that young people are very politically fatigued at the moment and they're disincentivized from learning by just the jargon that we encounter. So what can we do to empower ourselves to affect the change we need to see? You are young. Uh, Sonia, <laughs> could you um, give us some thoughts about mobilising? Well, I really relate to what you're saying. Um, I've never voted for a prime minister that has seen through their full term, except for let's see what happens the next three years. Um, so. I can understand, and this last election, which we haven't talked about, was very disappointing for young people. And it was an election that was the result of which you can clearly see was through generational lens, whether it was the inaction on climate change or the fact that um, the rejection of franking credits and negative gearing, young people feel very disillusioned. I think the first thing we can do is try to stay awake when someone says refundable franking credits and listen <laughs> and continue to interrogate what's happening because people want young people to think that tax is boring uh, but tax is the lifeblood of our system so you know I'm on a mission to kind of make tax funky Actually, that was the wrong one I'm on a mission I'm on a mission to make tax lit and um, yeah and what do you what mean <laughs> um, and that just means being in control of your own financial literacy is also important. So understanding what superannuation means, how much you have in your account is the first step at a personal level. And then on a second level, stay engaged. And young people are more engaged than people give them credit for. And I'm glad you asked the question. The comment that, that young people are politically fatigued, I found interesting. Would you endorse that, Sonia? Well, if you look at what's been happening in terms of demographics and uh, in the last election, there were swings against the ALP in marginal seats in Queensland and Tasmania mm -hmm. in the age bracket over 65. So that's a clear indication, and it has been the case over the last few years, that there is no demographic incentive for politicians to be thinking about youth and front of mind, whether it's tax, whether it's uh, representation, whether it's about the issues they care about, environment, um, refugees, vulnerable Australians. So young people are fatigued because they see that politicians are pork barreling older voters. I think though we had 
we've gone somewhere. I, I brought this. It's the age from May 10th. And this is the first election where we've seen a leader of a party acknowledge that there is discrimination in the tax system. So the headline on the age during the election campaign reads, shorten vows to fix bias against young. So now when you see that that he hasn't been successful, of course young people feel disillusioned because that was what a lot of young people were looking for. I just want to ask the other members of the panel to address that question that Sonia raised in quite explicit terms. She says young people are disappointed and disillusioned with the election outcome. Should they be, Stephen? I think they should be, yes, I think they should be. But I got inspired by the same-sex marriage plebiscite a couple of years ago, which seemingly got young people in particular fired up and active and participating in an issue that I think all fair-minded, decent people would, you know, rally for, and obviously the result of it proved that. So while same-sex marriage issues uh, are very different to franking credit refunds, <laughs> dare I say it, and, um, and capital gains tax concessions and, and these sorts of accounting fee deductions and those sorts of things, which are really, really important too, there is the opportunity there. I can see that how young people in particular can get fired up about a particular issue, and uh, I think that's great. Now, how do you actually uh, address the sort of election campaign? And, and Danny did touch on it with the the, um, uh, the the tax proposals that Shorten did take to the election on those those things. I'll just call them, <laughs> um, uh, and they were rejected, and they were rejected completely uh, by the electorates that had a high weighting of older people. Now, we don't know quite yet the number of young people who didn't vote, um, or perhaps uh, whether it invigorated more old people to go out and vote, because they, I know we've got compulsory voting, but still not everybody votes. So mm. I'm just not sure, but I th I, I'm, I'm disappointed um, personally for the for the lack of progress that we're going to be making on inter uh, intergenerational issues. Uh, and even though Scott Morrison did sort of suggest that he's going to uh, have a guarantee for first home buyers mm -hmm. who have a 5% deposit to get them to the 20% deposit. I I'm, I'm, think that's reasonable. It might, it might get people in a bit too deep, but I, it's not the worst policy I've ever seen. It could be okay, but it's not going to fix um, uh, home ownership rates for, for young people. Danielle, I just want to ask you your view on that. Should, should young Australians be disappointed with what happened at the weekend? Look, I think what happened at the weekend was essentially a vote for the, the status quo. Um, there, there was a clear choice of um, quite a, a bold package of both tax and spending reforms, some of which had an intergenerational lens, as Sonia mm -hmm. has pointed out. Um, the alternative was essentially business as usual. There wasn't um, a very substantive policy agenda beyond um, proposed income tax cuts. Um, and, and I do think that the status quo is delivering outcomes that are unfair to young people in, in certain areas that I've already pointed to. So, um, yes, I think they would be right to feel disappointed in the vote. In the vote. Um, I would just make one point, though, on the um, – it's not clear to me that there was this huge um, generational split in voting on those types of tax issues. So, really? for example, we looked at – um, the areas where there are big franking credit claims, where you get a lot more people negative gearing, um, they tend to be the kind of wealthier inner city suburbs. They actually swung away from the coalition on a two-party preferred term, um, nice. usually to Labor, sometimes to Greens or Independents. Um, so it doesn't look to me that this was just people voting in their self-interests. Um, where the big two-party preferred swings to the coalition were, 
tended to be seats with lower average incomes, lower levels of education. Um, and I, so I think a better explanation is actually people were just afraid. Um, they saw the scale of what was proposed. Um, they they felt afraid of, the, of a change that significant, particularly if they didn't um, you know, fully grapple with all of it. Um, so it doesn't look to me like these tax changes have been knocked over necessarily by people's self-interest mm. um, so much as perhaps fear. Very interesting. Another question, the lady towards the middle there, yes. Thank you. Hi. Um, building off of that to some degree, when you say that it's to swing because the status quo is being maintained and change is being feared, um, would a lot of that be drawn back to political and financial literacy in schools and a lack of education reform around those policies? I mean, like she said, one of the biggest things like with staying involved is not falling asleep when people say refundable franking credits, but it's easier to do that if at any point in 12 years of education a teacher has brought up the word. Wow, what a good yeah. question. I uh, want yeah. to ask each of you, Stephen, Yeah, I've been first. doing some work on that, um, and in fact for a, uh, a group called the Economic Security for Women, and one of the issues that's really important in, in their work is financial education, literacy is, is the other way of looking at it, and um, understanding what your, your basic financial uh, position is in super, in getting a loan, in your credit card obligations, but also in a bigger picture sense too. And it's not to be patronising because it's your money. It's, you're the one that you're exposed to this um, uh, financial education. And I think you're quite right that it should start in schools. You think about what what we teach our kids, you know, getting a driver's licence. We make them drive for 100 hours. We make them do all these tests and all these other things before they can even get on the road. And that's a good thing. Mm. You know, we teach sex education. We teach all these things at school, but we don't teach them anything about money. Now, these other things are really important. You've got to get them right, if you know what I mean. But if you get your money wrong, if you don't understand that you're being ripped off by the bank, your super fund, or a credit card, you're paying horrendous interest rates. You don't understand that you're being ripped off at a government sense because these billions, billions and billions and billions of dollars of uh, tax transfers are going on, intergenerational tax transfers are going on. You're, you're going to be caught out and you're going to be suffering on the back of it. Son Sonia, financial and political literacy in schools. So I think there's lots of political literacy. You mentioned earlier about the uh, Same-Sex Marriage Act and young people get out there and they march for marriage equality. They don't march for housing affordability. They, we saw the school children marching for the climate action yes. on climate change. Two weeks earlier in Mosman, there's this great picture of uh, Tim Wilson's Franken Credit Inquiry of older people, uh, wealthy retirees, giving evidence and they're angry and they're shouting with just they were as booing much me. Pressure. I gave evidence at that and they, they swore at me. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I got booed too. Yeah. <laughs> Good company. <laughs> so it's so young people are engaged and they're educated and so they're empathetic. And I think one thing that we've missed here in our discussion about intergenerational fairness is the connection between intergenerational fairness and intragenerational fairness. At the end of the day, the real reason we're having this conversation isn't because I want to have everything that mm. you know my grandparents had and must not you know have the exact same standard of living. It's I want to live in a society where my friend who who has got is getting an inheritance with my friend who isn't, isn't dependent on their inheritance to have a good quality of life, which is ultimately what we're talking about. And that involves not just um, political literacy, 
for young people, but being able to tie these economic tax issues, these boring things, to the things that most young people already care about. Um, how, how do, I mean, where I'm so educated and I still don't really understand what's happening with my superannuation. Mm. What about if you're a refugee young person or mm. if you're an Aboriginal young person who hasn't gone to school in places where they do teach you? So keeping in mind the reason why young people need to stay engaged financially and politically is not just for their own self-interest because we become just as bad as the baby boomer generation if, if that's what we do. <laughs> it's understanding why we care about intergenerational fairness and it's always tying it back to, yeah, intra. And Danny, uh, briefly asking you about financial and political literacy, I'm reminded of your wonderful line that in recent weeks we've seen young Australians march for the future of the planet and older Australians protest for their, for their uh, franking credits. <laughs> that was probably a little harsh. Uh, but no, I, I clearly um, think financial and economic literacy is incredibly important. I would like to see more of it. Um, you know, in, in my role as Chair of Women in Economics Network, I can't help but note um, economic enrolments have gone through the floor mm. <laughs> over the past two decades. So even though we have all these extra people studying to year 12, um, none of them are choosing economics and particularly women and, and people from more disadvantaged backgrounds aren't choosing economics. Um, so we as a profession have a big image problem that we need to deal with and we need to find ways, I think, to make it more engaging for young people. That was a great question, thank you. Um, the lady towards the right, towards the back with her hand up, Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if we can just uh, spend a bit of time briefly talking about some of the changing social conditions and perhaps how that's impacting in the discussion. For example, sure. people are getting married later, if at all. A lot of single person households now, and we know that the growing rate of homelessness for women over 60 is pretty alarming. And secondly, people are having children later in life, if at all. I'm not gonna lie, I know among uh, some of my friends, there are people who are deciding not to have children just when they're faced with the thought of climate change and, and the impact that's gonna have financially and socially growing hex debt, renting for longer, not enough time to get into a house, that's making people decide not to, you know, start a family. Yeah, good question. These big social changes, Danny? Yeah, it is. It's it's very real. Um, so, you know, you do hear um, people delaying having children for economic reasons rather than kind of personal preference reasons. Um, you know, and if you look at some of those questions around housing affordability, um, we know that high-income young people, are, their home ownership rates haven't really shifted in the past 40 years. So if you're in the top 20% of 25 to 34-year-olds, you're almost just as likely to own, own, own a home now than you were 40 years ago. Um, if you're in the bottom 20%, your home ownership rates have plummeted. They've gone from 60 to about 20%. Mm. Um, so there's a potential social shift there as well. Um, so there's sort of a, a class issue sitting beyond that. Some people are now finding home ownership out of reach when they would have been able to get into the market. Um, and if that's then flowing through into decisions around family formation, um, I think that's a big issue from a societal perspective. Stephen? And, and then there's things like immigration, which is sort of a bit of a taboo subject to a point. Um, and uh, 
the immigration debate, of course, is easily distracted into sort of uh, r racism issues and those sorts of horrid things. But um, there is an optimal level. I'm not quite sure what the number is. I, we might even be there now. I don't know. But the amount of work that's done on immigration and importantly linked to that is the infrastructure that's here to allow whatever that number of immigrants is to be able to get to school, to live in a, an affordable house, to get public transport to the place that they work is really, really important. So the, the, the dynamics that you're talking about are really disconcerting. The policy solutions to them are still unclear. And to the ideas that I think we do know that there are some policy steps that we can take, the resistance to those policy changes is huge um, from, from vested interests, if I can be sort of a bit um, militant mm. on that one. So the, the, the issues are sort of really, really important. They're very real, but they're the, the solutions, you know, I try to be all ears when I hear people like the audience here sort of coming up with the concerns that they're expressing to tell me, you know, what, what should I be doing in my many influential <laughs> role that I have with some people? You know, what, what should I be looking at when I'm trying to talk to policymakers and the like? Sonia? Um, I've noticed the same thing with my friends. And I think one thing we don't talk about is the effect of the things you mentioned, um, partnering later, buying a house later, having children later, the effect it's having on youth mental health. One of the big mm. things that this government has um, put forward is funding for Headspace, which is great. But I think people are underestimating how the, the, mis, the misalignment with the expectations that young people grew up with and the fact that they are not living the lives they saw their parents lead, how much of an effect that has on their mental health. And so I, I think it's a very real problem. And, you know, if maybe if houses were more affordable earlier, if, if education debts could pay, be paid down quicker, people would be partnering earlier and having children earlier. In the meantime, instead of looking at actual structural reform, where putting money at frontline services. But, you know, here's an idea for the Morrison government. If you care about youth mental health, tax reform. <laughs> lit, tax is lit. Thanks, Sonia. <laughs> I want to come to this lady here on the left-hand side. Thank you. Um, with the selection of the topic age wars, uh, we are fueling this intergenerational adversity. And I think we could use our energy much better to say, how do we work together? So my question is, how can we work together? Because I think there is actually a generosity amongst both groups to work together and to overcome these issues. And I think we need to change the conversation so that it's positive and we work together. Terrific, and I need to put my hand up as the editor of Grattan that we should tone down the language. Uh, Danny? No, no, that's absolutely fair. Um, you know, sometimes we sex up the titles of events to try and get people along, but no, you're absolutely right. Um, so I, you know, I like to think of it as a generational bargain. Um, so in a sort of society sense, um, you know, people of working age will support people um, in retirement, um, in the expectation that when they reach retirement years, the next generation will support them. But of course, there's all other there's other sorts of flows from that. Um, so we know that a lot of people in their retirement are helping their children um, raise their grandchildren. Um, they are sometimes helping their children get into the housing market. 
Um, so there's all sorts of ways in which generations are helping each other. Um, and I think that's what we should be talking about. How do we make sure that generational bargain is working? How do we make sure it's sustainable? Um, and I promise to use that as the title for next time we hold an event on this topic. <laughs> Stephen, and can we uh, call a truce to the war? Yeah, I think I think so. And uh, I, I'm going to say something that's very glib, but I hope, hopefully I'll make a point with it. Yeah, some some young people are really rich, some old people are really quite poor and living in poverty. And I think one of the questions over there mentioned that a record number of women aged 60 are homeless or something like that. You know, what a disgrace that is. So it's not it's not an intergenerational war because some old women are homeless. You know, what a, yeah, as I said, what a disgrace. So I think we've got to sort of look at the the intergenerational issues, which are very real. They are real, but also within that, if we were to sort of maybe have a three-dimensional matrix or something like that, <laughs> there are some there are some income and wealth issues within the different age cohorts. And again, um, Danny and the Grattan Institute sort of dig out so nicely when they prepare their reports to sort of highlight those inequality issues on wealth and income, but also on uh, age cohorts, and Sonia, and even gender as well. Sonia, do you do you feel as though you're in a war? It's interesting. So Think Forward has a series of podcasts, and one of them we sat down with Saul Eslake, and I asked him, "Why is it that when we talk about these issues, older people worry that we're descending into intergenerational warfare?" And his answer was, "Well, think about it. In the 1970s, when there were student protests or young people were talking about issues, it was violent and it was war. That's not what young people like today are. In fact, they're more conservative than ever." So. I, I'm not concerned that we're going to descend into intergenerational warfare, though I hear your concerns that, you know, when you've heard of protests or young people speaking up before, in the past, in Australia, it has looked violent. And, you know, like I said... What about Egg Boy? He was sort of pretty... Um, <laughs> <laughs> not sure that he was representative of a generation. Um, one more question, I'm sorry, and it's coming from that lady on the right towards the back, please. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to very much touch on this point of um, how can we get the generations to work together. Um, as a young person, I'm really concerned about aged care um, and I know a lot of the discussion has been around the current projections of aged care spending, but what we know is we're not getting the return on investment we should. The Royal Commission into Aged Care is very much highlighting this and the majority of nursing homes aren't even profitable today. So I'm really interested in what your take is on how we can actually fund an aged care system that works. Look, I think that's another very good question, which I'll put to Danny first. It's um, really been horrible watching the Royal Commission, apart from anything else, let alone anyone who has had experience of uh, seeing elderly loved ones in um, some uh, distress at aged care homes. Danny, how can we do this better? I'm actually don't know much about aged care, I'm going to have to start by saying, but yeah, I, I share the distress. I certainly teared up watching some of the 7.30 report stories. Um, look, my understanding is that um, at the moment we mainly government fund, but we also um, have accommodation bonds and people can make contributions. Um, I, I've heard people say, and as I said, I'm not an expert in this area, um, that it's, it's kind of a binary system. So if you're rich enough, you contribute, or if you're not rich enough, you don't contribute. Um, there's no kind of indication of a scale of your wealth. So it may well be that certain people could make a greater contribution than they are now to help underpin the sustainability of the system. 
Um, but I think you're right to point to the fact that their, you know, funding is a big issue, but there's also a whole lot of other questions around quality, et cetera, that we need to deal with in addition to funding. Stephen? And something that we've half touched on, which may be able to be used to address this, is the proverbial um, asset rich, income poor, older person. And I know reverse mortgages and that sort of concept have a very bad name. Uh, for older people, but that's probably because of more of the financial institutions who offer those products rather than the product itself. So if they're well regulated, and it can be even can be even the form of like a reverse hex debt for old people. So this might actually address that issue. So and it's not to sort of say that the old person gets the money out and you know spends it unwisely, but it, you know, well they can do that if they wish. But they can spend it on their retirement care. So if they've got that proverbial house that's worth a million bucks, for example. They're 80, they need, you know, in, uh, sort of close care uh, in an aged person's facility. Then what's the problem, in my mind, what's the problem in the government giving $20,000 a year for that person until the day they die and the amount being accumulated like a hex debt and it's taken out of the estate when they pass away? So assuming they live to 90 I'll, just, I'll assume though interest rates, because I'm up here and I don't have my spreadsheet with me. That's $200,000 of, um, of debt, mm -hmm. 20000 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. That's kept them nice and it's kept them well. No drain on the taxpayer, if that's a concern from policymakers in the, in the Minister of Finance and these sort of people. They've had a decent uh, twilight years um, and the kids still inherit a truckload of cash anyway. So uh, yeah. so using, negative, using um, reverse mortgages and things like that, I think we need to look at that very, very more so that there's not just this massive inheritance to those kids who are lucky enough to have parents who've got a couple of properties in Sydney and Melbourne. Sonia? Well, I think not all, I know today we're here talking about tax, but not all solutions to our problems are economic. And um, my parents come from India and they have a very different relationship. We have, there are very different relationships with how generations relate to each other. We've just talked about asset rich retirees with big houses that can't afford to downsize because they, you know, they, that's the house they grew up in and young people who can't afford a house. So maybe the question isn't in, uh, purely in taxing and spending policies, but also how we as a society, as a culture, want families to look like and how we encourage society not to be siloed with, you know, uh, old aged home there and a early childhood centre here and look at the ways that in Scandinavia you kind of combine and integrate our society and that's good for young people and old people. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry to say we're actually out of time. I've enjoyed the fact that we've called a truce to the war. I've, uh, I reckon the panel's performed magnificently. Just before we go, can I say a couple of very quick thank yous? Um, I want to thank the staff at the State Library and Megan French from the Grattan Institute for all their hard work in actually making this event possible. Thank you to you, our audience, for your interest and engagement and for your questions. You've put me out of a job. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking our fantastic panel, Sonia Stephen and Danielle. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.
grattan.org.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.